This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode number 20. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hello and welcome. In the light of what has happened last week in Paris, I thought it would make sense to learn the principles of peaceful change. So this episode is about the science of changing the world, and it's based on the work of um, Scott Sherman. He calls it transformative action, or the science of transformative action. And we will talk about it, um, first we'll talk about what doesn't work, and Usually that's not exactly how positive psychology rolls because we talk about the stuff that does work. However, in this case, we want to talk about what's work, what doesn't work first because so that we can make educated decisions in our own life about how to respond to things we want to change. And then we will look at what works and why. And thirdly, the theory that we learn basically from the science of transformative action we'll kind of apply it to terrorism. So, what doesn't work? Well, basically what Scott Sherman found was that almost everything that we think works does actually not result in truly solving problems. And um, he looked at the legal system first, and he found that people who try to achieve lasting change through using the legal system failed. And this had different reasons. One was that those who are oppressed can usually not afford the good lawyers. Another thing was that ordinary people don't really understand what lawyers talk about. So they can't control the situation. Think about it. If somebody takes over from you and they speak in a language you can't understand, you have very little room to to make any actual change. And they also found that court cases polarized people so badly that they were actually less likely to find real solutions than they were before they went to court. The next mechanism of social change that Sherman looked at was political change. And there they have a similar problem. The minorities have zero informal access to decision makers. So obviously they don't, you know, have dinner and and play golf with the big players. So it's very hard for them to get their voices heard. And also they have no money for lobbying, which means that if you're in politics and you can't lobby, you can't really have informal access to decision makers. There are some cases where um, things work. For example, Obama's win back in 2008 was, you know, regardless of whether you like Obama or not, it was actually quite surprising considering other people's affiliations and power um, compared to his standing and his status within the Democratic Party. But that's not exactly something that happens often. Usually, political change is hard to achieve if you don't have access to decision makers and money for lobbying. And the other mechanism that Sherman looked at was um, science. And science was unfortunately not that helpful as well because whatever studies people 
tended to produce as evidence were always counteracted. And especially if you're fighting some Goliath, they will always have the money to pay some kind of expert who would say that you are, um, that they have counter evidence, that that's not true. Or if they don't have counter evidence, at least they'll have some kind of evidence that will basically tear your evidence apart. So either way, you can't win. And what all of these mechanisms have in common is that all of these result in opposing parties trying to cripple each other. Now, of course, that cannot work because if we all try to cripple each other, we spend the majority of our money, time, energy trying to destroy other people's efforts and all the money that we pour into doing that just cannot actually flow into creating a solution which is where transformative action comes in. And now we will talk about the principles of transformative action. And the principles are, number one, exposing injustice, number two, social Aikido, and number three, um, thinking and creating basically positive goals and um, visions for the future. The first principle exposing injustice is basically the idea that we have to speak the truth and problems need to be addressed. We can't eliminate that. However, we have to speak the truth without trying to humiliate, humiliate, embarrass, or antagonize um, those who did wrong in our eyes. And this is actually the approach of nonviolence, and it has worked in countries all over the world. Um, Soviet Union, although it was a very, um, it it basically crumbled without a big war. There was near wars and everything before that, but it when it was finished, it finished without a war. Um, India got its independence from Great Britain using nonviolence and um, many. You know, Gandhi is famous for that, but actually we kind of have to credit the whole country. And uh, in South Africa, it was Nelson Mandela and his and his allies who refrained from, from actually humiliating and embarrassing and antagonizing the apartheid regime. And because of that, he could really work together with um, the ruling party to eventually get over apartheid or at least get over it as a political system um same with south african dict- uh, sorry south american dictatorships and the thing is that a, the big problem that we have according to this theory is that we spend too much time protesting and not enough time solving problems. So a lot of time we are all for exposing injustice and the papers are full of it. But if we get stuck in that stage, positive change can never happen. We will just all be very angry and that's it. Actual change cannot happen just from that. So the second principle of transformative action is what he calls social Aikido. Now, for those of you who don't know what Aikido is, it's uh, one of the martial arts. 
And it's basically, in Aikido, the leading principle is to transform the energy of your opponent and use it for your advantage. Now here, the idea is basically that you transform the negative into the positive, that you actively strive to transform enemies into allies. And instead of trying to win, the aim is to find a solution that works for everybody who is involved. Um, the emphasis is on working together to solve the problem. If this is not done, the majority of resources will be wasted trying to hurt the other party um, instead of po solving the real problem. Now, this really goes against something that's deeply ingrained in our culture, and that is the idea of competition and how good it is. And there are lots of um, theories which say that basically our home, whole economic wealth was built on the principle of competition. And... Um, They actually did some research on this where they, um, and lots of research has actually been done where they looked into workplaces and they wanted to see if um, the results of the work, the quality of the work, what was better, what the quality of the solutions, what was better if people worked against each other or if they collaborated. And in 65 studies, they found that collaboration beats competition. And only in eight studies did they find the opposite. And that's a tough, tough pill to swallow. If um, in our culture, competition is so ingrained that we might not even notice it. We might not, you know, if you're asked, what do you think is better, a competition or collaboration? You might answer, well, it's clear, collaboration, of course. But lots of our social structures are actually created in a way that forces us to compete with each other and instead of collaborating and think about it when you try to get a job or you try to get into university you want to advance in your job like in one way or the other you're always kind of encouraged to compete against other people so it's hard for us this idea that we have to kind of get over competition in order to achieve transformative action. Now, when we look at the past, it's, um, it's easy to see that actually anger, this idea is very, very ingrained as well in our culture that happy people don't do anything. They just sit on the couch and are blissed out, basically. So in order to get people to actually take action, we have to make them really, really angry. And basically what they've shown is that anger is really effective to get people involved who were not previously involved trying to solve a problem. So, for example, if you are not in any way political whatsoever, chances are is that if some event... Um, especially if it in one way or the other truly affects your life, really, really makes you angry, chances are you will, you know, join some kind of movement or political party. However, when it comes to actually solving the problem, anger prevented people from finding and upholding lasting solutions. And anger and hate turn people to react with anger and hate, which is what they wanted to stop in the first place. 
So that is a very real danger, and that's something we have to be aware of. That when we, when we kind of react with hate, and for and on all of that, that in one way or the other, we are actually producing more of what we don't want. And this is also again very hard, but it's it it happens to, to be the way that it is, and all of this is not enough if we can't imagine number three a better future the number three the principle of transformative action is a better future and we have to create positive goals things don't disappear because we fight them things disappear because something else makes it obsolete so we don't get rid of something instead we create something that is better which replaces it now all of these principles were a little bit theoretical so and the reason i chose to talk about it is what ha- is really the attacks and what happened and how everybody is discussing terrorism right now so i thought it would be really interesting to basically look at terrorism through the lens of this theory of transformative action. So let's outline what this would look like um, looking at um, specifically Islamic terrorism. Okay, Although, of course, by no means could we say that terrorism is in some way exclusive to that region or, or origin or religion or anything. I mean, terrorists exist everywhere in the world. However, this is what is talked about right now and in the last 10 years probably or 13 years since 9-11 more than any other terrorism so let's look at that this theory would predict that the war against terrorism will not end terrorism it might succeed in preventing some attacks but it cannot ultimately solve the problem so again the first principle of transformative action is that injustices have to be revealed in a non-confrontational way. And this would include both sides. Um, The West would have to articulate their concerns honestly. And they would also, or we would also have to listen to the concerns of the Muslim world, again, in a non-confrontational way. Um, Number two would be social Aikido. So we're trying to... Um, find win-win solutions and turning enemies into allies. Now, I'm not entirely sure if Sherman and the others who um, support the theory of transformative action, what they would say about the likelihood of success in turning terrorists into allies. And I'm not saying this um, sarcastically. Like I, I honestly don't know if they think it would be worth it to try to convince people who are already terrorists or if they would basically just say no. Um, either way, it doesn't really matter because the overwhelming majority of Muslims are not terrorists, so fostering neighborly collaboration is possible. And some might argue that the West has the problem it has because it, because it has been too open and too tolerant. However, leaving you to your own devices and collaborating with you to solve a problem are not the same thing. And this is not a political statement. I'm not making a political statement in any way. It's a question of definition. And um, it's my attempt to explain this theory of transformative action in light of terrorism. 
doesn't mean that I condone what people do in did in any way or the other. It just means that that according to this theory, we really have to make sure that we collaborate and not just try to solve the problem um, by antagonizing the entire Muslim world. Number three is to have positive goals and replace it with something, replace what is with something better. And when it comes to terrorism, we are trapped in a fixed what's broken model. Rarely do we hear or read about what positive future would look like. The only thing we seem to know is that a positive future in this case would mean a world without such attacks. But what is the best possible outcome? And I'm not aware of any science about what this best possible outcome could be. However, I think it's important to illustrate it, so I'll just use examples that come to my mind. Uh, one is that every single person would understand the difference between a race or religion and a terrorist. That's really important. The second point would be, in a, in a positive future, would be that we would be interwoven as a society is, instead of neatly separated. And that means that we don't just tolerate each other, but are actually, are actually connected to each other. And this might sound really idealistic, but if you think about it, do you happen to have a friend or a significant other, someone you really love, who was born into another culture or religion? And if that is possible for you, do you think it's possible for your friends to have a person like that in their life? And if it's possible for your friends, do you think that their friends could have a relationship like that as well? Another point, another point in a positive future would be that everyone could truly state what makes them uncomfortable without the fear of being called a racist. And fears and concerns would be taken seriously from both parties without, and people would try to work together to resolve those things instead of making fun of each other or belittling the concerns of the others. Um... I think I just caught myself, I said the others, but actually in a world, in a positive world, I don't think we would speak of them and us. However, if I don't speak of them and us, it would be really hard to kind of explain what positive future, um, what a positive future would look like, because you as a listener would simply not understand who I'm talking about. So I will use us and them, but actually in a really positive future, there would be no us and them, it would just be all of us having different, maybe practicing different things and beliefs and customs and all of that, but still us being, you know, people of, you know, wherever you are, New Yorkers or whatever. There are many components, many more that such a positive future could have, and none of this is easy especially when all our instincts kick in and make us unite with our people in an attempt to feel more safe. And this is perfectly understandable because in lots of ways we are actually wired to do that. We are wired to to kind of um, seek the company of our group and our home and, and all of that when we are under attack. And that's that's actually a mechanism that has evolved, that has kept us safe. Um. However, if we antagonize others, 
we will not, according to this theory, make the terrorism problem go away. So we have to imagine a positive future and in collaborate together and without letting past experiences and doubts and fears stop us. And that might be really, really tough. It, nobody says these things are easy. But just like it's unrealistic for you as an individual to reach your goals if you don't know what you aspire to in the first place, it's even more unlikely for an entire civilization to do that. So if we don't start thinking about what positive relationships with, between different cultures look like, it's very unlikely that we can actually achieve a state of peace just, you know, just like that. And basically saying that our goal is to not have terrorism is a bit like, you know, going on a road trip and saying, I don't want to go to Rome. It's really vague. So I hope you, I don't know if I say you have enjoyed this session. I hope you could actually take the ideas that Scott Sherman has laid out so beautifully for us um, in, in order to teach us how to achieve positive change in anything. And I hope that this episode has maybe, can maybe stimulate you to think about what you read in newspapers in a slightly different way. Have a good week. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at Kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengthphoenix.com. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.